The scripture lesson I am reading today is, is actually a, a few verses, the beginning scene where David is, steps forward and accepts the challenge of taking on Goliath. So it is selected verses from 1 Samuel 17. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The Israelites said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man that kills this Philistine? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. From time to time, I will pick a biblical text, usually from the lectionary, and a title that I know expresses something from that text that I want to say. But then when I actually get around to writing the sermon, something will sometimes stand in the way. I will write sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph, with a fear, a hesitance, of what I really want to say. It's like a golfer walking around the green, holding the putter, but not using it to tip the white ball into the cup. When this happens, the only way I can get out of that rut is to start over from the beginning and to start saying what I really want to say. That is what I did last night even as the power went out <laughs> as I was starting over. But first in starting over is the title, The Ambiguity of Eloquence. I chose this title because I know that deep down inside I love eloquence. When I read something that is eloquent, when I hear a conversation in which someone says something eloquent, when I hear a sermon or a political speech in which the speaker is eloquent, I am moved to admiration and sometimes to envy. It was the best of times and the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. 
Out-out brief candle lights, but a walking shadow of poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. When I encounter such words, such phrases, everything around me grinds to a halt. And for one brief moment, I feel in the presence of something holy. But for some reason, I am also distrustful of eloquence. It may be that my distrust is primarily due to a desire to have more of it for myself. It may be that I have been drawn in one too many times by the power of someone's words, only later to be disappointed or hurt by their actions. It may be that I have simply lived long enough to see the wide gap that often opens up between the loftiness of our words and the reality of our actions. I'm not sure why I am as suspicious of eloquence as I am, but it has given rise to this title, The Ambiguity of Eloquence. Second, in my rewriting, the text. The text for today, as I said, comes from an early scene in the life of David the king. It is one of the best-known scenes in David's life when he volunteers to take on the giant Goliath. As the episode opens, David is clearly the underdog, and we love him for it. He is the youngest of seven sons. He is from the provinces, the Sticks, Bethlehem, rather than the urban center of Jerusalem. He is young and inexperienced, bold and fearless. When he faces Goliath, Goliath, he refuses conventional armor, military attire, or weaponry, preferring five smooth stones and a sling. All of this, all of this leads us to love David. We love David. I can say it with a southern accent. We love David, the underdog. The outsider, the forgotten, the last born within the family. Yet if we set aside our natural affinity for David and pay attention to this germinating scene of his rule, we notice aspects of David's use of language that are not as morally appealing as our attraction to his heroics. For example, in the passage I just read today, David hears Israelite citizens say what King Saul is offering to anyone who will step forward and fight Goliath. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills Goliath, the citizens say, and will give him his daughter in marriage and will make his family free in Israel. When David hears this, he perks up. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? The people repeat the promise again. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills Goliath and will give him his daughter in marriage and will make the family free in Israel. David asks one more time, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? The answer comes again. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills Goliath and will give him his daughter 
in marriage and will make his family free in Israel. What is interesting to note for us is that these words that David speaks are the first time David speaks in Scripture. An Old Testament scholar, Robert Alter, has said that the first words people speak in the Bible are often windows into their identity or character. These words introduce us as readers to the future king of Israel, the one of whom Christ will be called Son. What shall be done for this man who kills the Philistine? What's in it for me? In addition, within these first words of David, it appears that David is willing to use religious language to help him secure King Saul's blessing to fight Goliath. When David first presents himself to Saul, he points to his own, David's own, physical strength and prowess. I used to keep sheep for my father, David says, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And Saul hears this aspect of David's resume. Saul is silent, which again, the scholars say, can mean that he is unmoved and unimpressed. But David responds to that silence by adding a religious component to his argument. The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of the Philistine. It is at this point when Saul hears the religious language that he gives David permission to fight Goliath. It is possible that David invokes religious language in response to Saul's silence as a deliberate rhetorical strategy. As king, Saul is widely known to be one of the most religious and devout people in all of Israel. He is meticulous about sacrifice, and he has received prophetic ecstasy himself. The timing of Saul's invocation and the permission make it entirely possible that David has secured Saul's blessing by playing the religious card and playing it well. So now that I've shared with you that I am suspicious of eloquence and that I have found some reason for such suspicion, even in this soon-to-be king David, what's my message to you? It's, it's not very positive. Or rather, what might the message of our faith be, of the Bible be, for us? I think the redeeming message is found in the unfolding of David's life and leadership, which goes forward through the books of Samuel and the first part of Kings. David's life is essentially one long, uninterrupted rise to power 
followed by a quick fall whose effects are devastating and long-lasting. The hinge on which David's life pivots is the most infamous episode by which he is known. His seduction and violation of Bathsheba, his attempted cover-up that fails, and his subsequent arranged killing of Bathsheba's husband Uriah, who is one of David's elite military officers. Through these successive acts, David violates his role as husband of Michal, and he violates his role as commander-in-chief of all Israel. Once he commits these acts, the fall begins. His life, the life of his family, and the life of his kingdom unravel. His own court prophet Nathan confronts and critiques him. David repents and is allowed to live, but a host of consequences that have been set in motion continue their deadly trail. A child born from his union with Bathsheba dies. One of David's sons, Amnon, violates David's daughter, Tamar, and David responds tepidly leading another of his sons, Absalom, to exact vengeance on Amnon, to raise troops against David, and ultimately to lose his life in a civil war against David that he launches. This conflict within David's family and kingdom never goes away. For even many years later, as David lies on his deathbed, he has to settle a struggle for succession that has broken out between two of his sons, Adonijah and Solomon, as he names Solomon to succeed him as king. One of William Faulkner's most complex and tragic novels draws its title from this unraveling, Absalom, Absalom, without ever mentioning these characters. But this unraveling is not all that we see of David, nor of David's eloquence. While David is known to us for the slaying of Goliath, he is also known to us, whether we recognize it or not, because of some of the most eloquent words he wrote or spoke. Psalm 51, which we say on Ash Wednesday, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Words of mourning that David expresses over the death of his son Absalom. O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would to God that I had died instead of thee, O Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside still waters, he restoreth my soul. These words from David have made their way into the liturgy of synagogue and church, 
They have comforted us in our grief. They have led us to face things that we have done and things we have left undone and to forget, to accept the forgiveness that is offered. Because of these words and the eloquence behind them, we in the Christian community say with respect and admiration that Jesus Christ himself is the son of David. What I find noteworthy and redemptive for our purposes is this. Nearly all the words of David that we have and hold dear in our faith and liturgy are spoken by David after his fall, after his violation of Bathsheba and killing of Uriah, after his confrontation with Nathan, after his confession of sin and his forgiveness. It is David's acknowledgement of what he has done. And it is his sad and burdened experience of all the consequences of the unraveling that lead him to the genuineness of character that enables him to write and speak these words that are most beautiful, that are truest, that are most eloquent. Creating me a clean heart, O God. Absalom, my son, Absalom. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It is only because David has passed through sin and confession, repentance and forgiveness and suffering that he is able to speak these eloquent words. A year or so ago, a member of the church called my attention to something that I had read in college, but to which I had not returned since. It is Ralph Waldo Emerson's Divinity School Address, delivered before the senior class at Harvard Divinity School on July 15, 1838. To these soon-to-be clergy, Emerson writes, I once heard a preacher who sorely tempted me to say, I will not go to church anymore. I think that's why the member sent me this article. (laughs) But Emerson continues, A snowstorm was falling all around us, The snowstorm was real, but the preacher was merely spectral. And the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him in the pulpit and then looking out the window, which we don't have, behind him into the beautiful meteor of the snow. The preacher had lived in vain, Emerson said. He had no word intimating that he had ever laughed or wept, was married or in love, had been commended or cheated or chagrined. If he had ever lived and acted, we were none the wiser for it. There was not a surmise, a hint 
in all of the discourse of his sermon that he had ever lived at all. Not a line did he draw out from real history. Emerson then charges this class of preachers who are about to be unleashed on the world. The true preacher can be known by this, that he deals out to the people his life, life passed through the fire of thought. What Emerson says of the preacher applies to all of us who would seek to speak, all who would seek to speak before us. The writers we read, the commentators to whom we listen, the teachers who instruct us, the politicians who seek to lead us, the moralists to whom we turn for collective wisdom, the counselors and therapists to whom we share our inmost grief and struggles. The true speaker can be known by this, that she deals out to people her life. Life passed through the fire of thought. I hope that what you experience from this pulpit, from me, from Casey, from Patrick, from anyone else who speaks from it, represents such life. I hope that those who seek to lead us in our nation with their words and their opinions, their eloquence, will speak as well from such life and from such fire. I hope that those who serve in our highest office and those who have begun to seek it for the coming years will lead from a life that has passed through the fire of thought. David passed through that fire and he became genuinely and beautifully eloquent because of it.